Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel, and today I am pleased to welcome Jonathan H. Marks, author of The Perils of Partnership, Industry Influence, Institutional Integrity, and Public Health, new from Oxford University Press. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so before we dive in and talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and a bit about your background and what brought you to this particular project. Certainly. So I am the director of the bioethics program at Penn State University. Um, I am a Brit by birth and actually spent some time in legal practice uh, in Britain. And that was sort of part of my introduction to the topic of the book because I ended up uh, representing a physician who was in a legal tussle with the corporate sponsor of her clinical drug trials. And while the legal issues were interesting, it led me to think about the broader systemic questions about the ways in which the industry funding of research might affect not just the outcomes of the research, but indeed the very policy, the, the, the very questions that get asked and the policies that get built on the answers we give to those questions. So, so in that in that realm, talk to us a little bit about about what a public-private partnership is, maybe, and and a little bit about the kinds of forms that they take before we start digging into uh, your analysis of the ways in which they work and the ways in which they fail. Absolutely. So, a public-private partnership is a term which covers all manner of things, and indeed, one of the reasons why I criticize the term itself as well as the practice is that it tells you very little about what's going on. But ordinarily, what you find is that a corporate entity, a company, or a trade association will be providing finances, sometimes um, uh, goods and services, what they call in-kind contributions, um, in collaboration with a public health agency. So to give you an example, um, Coca-Cola partnered with the UN Habitat Program and government in India to fund an initiative uh, called Support My School, where they were um, trying to improve sanitation in schools in rural India, as well as exercise facilities. Now, of course, poor sanitation is an important public health problem, um, and it's also a gender equity issue because when sanitation is poor, the girls drop out of school before the boys. So no one would quibble with the desire to improve sanitation in schools in rural India. But what was deeply troubling is that for a relatively small donation in this partnership from the soda company, they got um, months-long advertising using their uh, logos, their color schemes, they got a 12-hour telethon in which they, which they used to stage the second part of their gift, you know, all of which serves to burnish the reputation of the company. And you know, my concern is that in trying to challenge one public 
so one public health problem, the problem of um, sanitation, they are sowing the seeds of another public health problem, which is a, the obesity epidemic um, by promoting the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages. And what I also have argued is that that relationship is deeply problematic from the UN agency's point of view because its mission is to promote sustainable living. But um, drinking high uh, sugar drinks, sugar-sweetened beverages made from scarce local water supply and sold in plastic bottles is neither sustainable from an environmental nor a public health point of view. So... So why does that happen? Why why do public agencies or not-for-profit organizations, for that matter, right, turn to this kind of arrangement with the, the private sector rather than using public resources to fund these kinds of projects? Well, first thing is that you're right to flag that it's also um, public health NGOs, not-for-profits, um, patient advocacy organizations, health professional associations. You're right, it's all those too. And often they do it because um, they are strapped for cash. They need the money. I mean, I in the book, I spend a lot of time focusing on food, the food and soda industry, but I do touch on the opioid industry. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, obviously the opioid industry was trying to tackle a public health problem, which is pain management. And what they did is um, over a very small number of years, they gave... Um, $9 million to 14 different patient advocacy groups and um, health professional associations related to pain management. Um, and they really got something very powerful in return, um, which is that those entities often produced guidelines that um, sought to relax constraints on opioid prescribing. When the CDC tried to tighten its own guidelines, these organizations um you know, made representations to the contrary, challenging the tightening of those guidelines. But what's really fascinating is that um, of the top three donors, one was a patient advocacy organization and the other two were health professional organizations for physicians who worked in pain management. And after this whole thing hit the press, the opioid companies stopped giving and one of those professional associations had to close its doors because it was so heavily dependent on funding from the opioid industry. But that funding is deeply problematic because these organizations are making representations to policymakers and they appear to have the interests of patients and public health at heart, but they may be doing wittingly or unwittingly the bidding of their corporate sponsors. Is that inevitably a part of these kinds of relationships? Is, is there in your mind a way in which public or nonprofit or NGO sector can reach out to private corporate actors uh, who may have more money readily available and craft this kind of relationship that is not quite so corrupting, that doesn't, that doesn't uh, uh, weave its influence quite so perniciously throughout the system? So, Stephen, let's imagine that I said to you, um, here's a few million dollars. Do with it as you like. And you know that there's plenty more where that came from. Right. Are you going to do anything with that money that would be perceived by me as interfering with that interest, with my interests? In fact, are you going to do anything at all that I might perceive as undermining my interests? The answer is probably not. Um, um, and in many cases, almost certainly not. And that's what I call the tyranny of the next gift. It's not so much the gift that you've just received. 
It's the possibility of future giving that imposes constraints. And, you know, I, I say to people, you know, people talk about strings, but, you know, the reciprocity and influence is like gossamer. It's sometimes barely, imper- barely perceptible, but it's incredibly strong. And so I think um, that's one reason why these relationships are problematic. But another is that we often view them in isolation. And that's a total mistake. You know, so a, a public health NGO will say, well, should I enter into this relationship with this opioid company or this soda company? And they, they're thinking about it as though it's a discrete decision. But what they don't see is that from the other end, from the end of the corporate actor, this isn't a discrete decision. This is part of a, a broader strategy of influence, totally understandable. Corporations, we should expect to develop strategies of influence to the full extent that the law permits them to do it. So they're not just seeking to build a relationship with this one public health agency. They're building webs of relationships with universities, with public health agencies, and with public health NGOs. And the problem comes when we just look at one of these relationships in isolation and not at the whole web of relationships and the influence that may result from that. One of the things that, that, that as a political scientist, I found particularly interesting is as one of the ways in which you go about thinking about this is talking about the American constitutional system, the separation of powers, not just the American system, obviously, uh, but, but looking particularly at notions of, of uh, uh, separated institutions sharing powers in the American system and the ways in which we might adopt that way of thinking to thinking about uh, relationships of government to outside entities. Can can you, can you walk through that a little bit and, and, and share how you think that helps us think about this more clearly? Certainly, I'd be happy to. So, you know, as I say in the book, you know, imagine that the White House decided to get together with congressional leaders and the Supreme Court to draft the next round of health care reform, whoever the president might be, whatever that reform may be. You know, the argument would be if we sit down with the Supreme Court we'd know which provisions would withstand constitutional scrutiny and we wouldn't have the 10 years of litigation that have plagued Obamacare, right? And other claims might be made that it would help the Supreme Court understand the objectives of Congress and the White House and they'd have a better understanding of the legal constraints. Sure, but would this be a good idea? Of course not. And why wouldn't it be a good idea? Because the purpose of the Supreme Court is to determine the constitutionality of laws and hold the other branches of government accountable. And it can't do that if it's helping draft the laws or if it's climbing into bed with the other branches of government. So we totally get the need for tension and struggle between the branches of government, as you say, that's reflected in the doctrine of separation of powers. And one famous constitutional scholar said, you know, the constitution is an invitation to struggle. So we totally get the need for struggle, tension, and sometimes direct conflict between the branches of government, what you might call public-public relationships. But we also get it in relationships in the private sector, too. So we don't think it's a good idea if United and USA decide to fix their prices or to divide markets, one of them taking the New York DC route and the other taking, for example, the Boston DC route. And we don't think this is a good idea because... What this does is it harms us, the public, right? We end up paying more for our tickets. Um, And so we think that corporations should compete with each other 
not collude with each other. And there's been much debate about the, 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 what the word collusion means in our contemporary political sphere. But in antitrust law, um, the Supreme Court has said that collusion between uh, corporations is arguably the, the supreme evil of antitrust law. So then, so so walk that through another couple of steps for us, if you would. So so then, what does that tell us about what ought to be the relationship between the public sector and the private sector, the corporate sector? Absolutely, happy to spell it out. And I should say, by the way, that although the Supreme Court used the word evil in its in its decision there, um, I don't think that corporations are inherently evil and that government is inherently good. I think each is capable of good or ill, right? Um, but here's how I would sort of round out the argument. So we do get the need for a struggle between um, the branches of government, public-public. We totally get the need for competition, struggle, tension between corporations, private-private. Why is it that we think we can solve our most pressing public health and environmental problems, cancer, obesity, climate change, um, the opioid epidemic, why is it we think we can solve those problems by having public and private partner. I argue, too, we need separation, tension, and sometimes direct conflict between public and private in order to solve those problems. But we started this conversation, and, and you you certainly pay plenty of attention to this in the book, is that these, these relationships come into being precisely because uh, and this happens at the local level as well as the national level, of course, right? That 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 particularly in the United States, the public sector is so underfunded in so many different kinds of ways that arguably some of the good programs and policies that emerge out of these partnerships would not happen at all in the absence of them. So how, sh- how should we be thinking about, about that? Well, the first thing I suggest in the book is we need a plan to get from here to there, Right. You know, most of us walk around with with smartphones in our pockets because one man in a black polo neck decided several uh, ten or so years ago that we should all have smartphones. Right? He had a corporate strategy for getting this device in our hands, and I think public health agencies and public health NGOs need their need their own long term strategies. How can we get from here? where there's a heavy dependence on, a pub, on private funding to a place where that is not the case. And here are some of the steps on that road that I think are extremely important. Step number one, um, administrators and public health officials should stop taking money from the private sector while publicly touting the benefits and privately keeping their reservations to themselves. They must speak up about the ways in which these relationships are problematic and if it's tough for them to do it individually, they should do it collectively. So, for example, um, 120-something university presidents wrote um, to the Department of Commerce together, uh, I think about eight years ago, and they said, don't regulate our relationships with the private sector. We need those relationships in order to get the work done that we do. And I would argue they should have written to the government and said, you are expecting us to solve the world's most pressing problems, cancer, climate change, obesity, the opioid epidemic. Don't make us dependent on industry funding to solve these problems because then we'll only look in places that are consistent with the interests of powerful multinational corporations. If we're serious about solving these problems, we have to look everywhere. So um, being public about the problems uh, is the first thing. Then second... Sorry, let me, let me, let me, let me... Pull apart that a little bit yeah. because it's it's you earlier uh, observed 
and I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit here, right? But that that the the possibility of money and future money is inherently corrupting to humans. Um, so how do we, if 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 that even if overstated is true, then then how do we how do we overcome that collective action problem that gets all of those university present presidents together in the face of a probably reasonably good guess that there isn't more public sector money coming anyway, why would they then sacrifice what they understand to be their own narrow self-interest for that public good? So I think that um, the anxiety about jeopardizing their self-interest is more acute when they speak in isolation than when they speak together, right? But we have organizations that represent universities, right? We have the AAU, we have, I'm in a, a Big Ten institution, we collaborate with other Big Ten institutions. We can speak together as one voice without, or I, I should say our deans and our provosts and our presidents, without jeopardizing our status individually. And this is how change is often made. So let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the failure to disclose industry funding of medical research. How was that problem solved? Well, it hasn't been completely solved, but a major step on the road was the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors getting together, that's all the big medical journals, and agreeing on a set of policies regarding disclosure. Now, disclosure of conflicts is only the first step, in my view. Getting the money out is the second. But that step was made possible because these organizations collaborated with each other. These organizations that, that share a mission, like universities share a mission, they collaborated with each other. Let me give you another example. Every few months, all the state's attorneys general in the U.S. get together and have meetings. And they figure out how they're experiencing similar problems and how they can collaborate on solving those problems. That's how they ended up going after subprime lenders who are engaged in fraudulent business practices. And it's also how they're currently pursuing the opioid industry for um, downplaying the risks of addiction and abuse um, in ways that they allege are fraudulent. So um, there are plenty of examples of collaboration among public bodies um, that can really promote public health and that don't depend on money from um, the private sector. But I think it's also important for them to speak up about why public funding is important. Otherwise, we are never going to have a conversation about the need for public funding. How do we do that? Or what else should we be doing? Well, here's the other thing I would say in terms of what else we should be doing is right now, the default seems to be partnership yeah. with the private sector. And, I, and by the way, if you look at systemic analyses of partnerships, what you discover is there's very little evidence to support claims about their purported efficacy. And when you go, as I often do, and speak to public officials, they'll tell you horror stories about their experiences of public-private partnerships, how they're negotiated and drafted in terms that allow the public that, that allow the corporate partner to pull out when its profits drop. And sure enough, in many cases, when there's a downturn in profits in the third quarter in a year, the corporate partner pulls out and the public health agency is left holding the baby. So um, I think, uh, you know, we need to change the default. The default has to be 
and what I call a norm of separation, right? There should be arm's length relationships between public and private with at the very least an extremely compelling case for why you had to partner with this particular entity. I do not believe that um, the UN agency and the, and the Indian government could have shown that it was necessary to go to Coca-Cola for the money to improve sanitation from school, for schools in rural India. It may well be they, they could have gone somewhere else, but I don't think they could have shown that it was necessary to take it from this particular corporation. So um, I think we need to start thinking more creatively about how, how to solve public health problems instead of just taking the checks from the first checkbook that happens to open in the face of a public health challenge. So this, this, this may be an unfair question. It's going to pull you a little outside the, the terrain that you cover in the book, but I'm, I'm curious as to whether you are aware of any either national governments or particular localities that you think have done the kind of work that you are suggesting that we engage in. Yeah, so actually there are some examples. I often go to WHO meetings and, you know, people present from various countries. They present country studies of what's going on. And I've seen presentations from some countries. I think one was Brazil, where at one point, I don't know what the current situation is, the government's policy was simply not to partner in public health initiatives with a corporation whose products or practices were undermining public health. So, you know, there are some examples. And there are, of course, many countries and actually some localities in the U.S. that have introduced soda taxes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, although my own preference would be to see a tax directed at the corporation for practices and products that undermine public health or contribute to a public health problem rather than directly on the end user. But I still think, you know, there's a case to be made for that. So I think there are pockets of examples where people recognize the challenge of these corporate partnerships and are thinking more creatively about solutions. And that, of course, might be one way in which um, different member states of the World Health Organization can learn from each other by talking about their experience from these country studies and thinking about what one country can build on and learn from through both the successes and the failures of another. I'm Stephen Pimpere with the New Books Network. We have been speaking with Jonathan H. Marks, who is the author of The Perils of Partnership, Industry Influence, Institutional Integrity, and Public Health. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.